Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapunzel. Greatest American Hero came about at a time when I was really into still Star Wars and Indiana Jones and was just starting to explore the world of comics. So it was a perfect time for it to come on television. To this day, when I watch it in reruns, I can pretty much remember almost every episode. But it's not the show that really sticks in my memory. Instead, it's the memory of another fan of the show. He was a kid who was at my school, and he was obsessed with the show. He would run around the playground singing the theme song, and he would wear this red sweatshirt all the time. Now, there weren't a lot of Greatest American Hero toys, but he had a couple of these little action figures even. Even at that early age, I think you could describe him as a super fan. The show is wonderful, so I can imagine that's why he enjoyed it so much. But when he was in the playground of my school, he would try to act out being a superhero. This usually took the form of being kind of a daredevil. And this was before playgrounds were covered in wood chips and mats and all that stuff. Instead, it was hard blacktop below us. You played on the merry-go-round, you fell off, you got hurt. And we had things like monkey bars and all sorts of jungle gyms all over the place. So he would climb on the jungle gym and jump from bar to bar or try to balance up and down. And developed a reputation that made him quite popular, pulling off all these stunts. One of his favorite things to do would be to hang upside down by his legs and then kind of grab up and flip, not a like a big flip, but a flip off of one of the jungle gyms. It was a big event. People would, at the end of our recess period, would line up to watch it. It was very impressive. Then one day, maybe after 20 or 30 of these performances, he reached up to do the flip, pulled his legs out, his hands slipped, and he landed right on his face. It was a horrible mess. I think he broke his nose. He wasn't moving. Everybody was freaking out. Luckily, nobody tried to grab him or move him, and a teacher got on the scene pretty quickly. He was out of school for a couple of days, and when he came back, whew, was his face a mess. But it healed up, and he never really was the daredevil again. I often reflect back on that when I'm watching the show, thinking of this kid who a lot like Ralph, was discovering his powers, sort of his physicality and his ability to do stuff. And much like Ralph Hinckley in the show, his powers were not easily controlled and sometimes resulted in people getting hurt. Sadly, he didn't continue exploring those powers. Who knows what sort of great gymnast or athlete he might have been someday. Now, I don't live anywhere near him and I haven't heard from him since grammar school, so maybe he is some great, powerful gymnast somewhere. Maybe he's Maybe he's a superhero. Maybe he solves crimes in his neck of the woods. I don't know. But I can always picture him in that red sweatshirt climbing on top of those monkey bars and thinking, wow, that's pretty impressive. On today's show, we're going to talk about the greatest American hero. Probably the best comedy superhero hybrid TV show ever made. We're going to talk about the stars of the show. We'll talk about the premise. We'll talk about how the show progressed over seasons. We'll talk about the theme song. And we have a couple of special treats. Metagirl's back with the top five list of Greatest American Hero episodes. And Retroist contributors Jonathan and Mike 
have a very special interview with the greatest American hero himself, William Catt. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. The Greatest American Hero was a science fiction TV series, which aired for three seasons from 1981 to 1983 on the ABC network in the United States. It premiered on March 18, 1981, in a two-hour movie pilot. It would star William Catt as teacher Ralph Hinckley. For the second half of the first season, he was referred to as Ralph Hanley, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Playing against him was Robert Culp as the FBI agent Bill Maxwell, and Connie Selica played lawyer and love interest of Ralph, Pam Davidson. The show chronicles the adventures of Ralph as a superhero after he's given a red suit by a group of aliens. Now, while he might have a superhero suit, the big problem is he lost the instruction manual, so he doesn't know how to use the powers up front. He has to learn how to use the suit. So the show starts with Ralph as a school teacher for special students, meaning troubled youths, and he's determined to get through to him. He's a do-gooder and takes them on a geological survey field trip to the desert. He's kind of always doing real weird things with his students, but he's trying. 
While coming back from the field trip that night, the school bus breaks down, and Ralph starts to walk back through the desert to get help. He encounters a swerving car driven by the FBI agent, Bill Maxwell, played by Culp, and it stops just in time to avoid hitting him. At that moment, two bright lights appear in the sky, which freaks them out, and they both jump in the car to try to get away. But the car won't start, and the doors lock by themselves, trapping both of them inside. They're then surprised to find that the lights come from an alien spaceship. The aliens tell Ralph and Bill, by way of the car radio, that they're supposed to work together to save the world. At this point, they're given a black case. When Ralph opens it, he finds a red suit, which endows him with superhuman abilities. Bill freaks out and runs away, but later contacts Ralph, which would lead to an awkward partnership as the two try to use the suit to fight crime. As I mentioned, a lot of the humor in the show and the fun of it comes from the fact that Ralph doesn't know how to use this suit and often has to try to learn it through trial and error. So it's not your standard superhero, very confident all the time. In fact, Ralph often has to be forced to be a superhero, not because he's afraid, which sometimes he might be, but because it's very difficult to be a superhero when you don't know how to use your powers. So a little bit about the cast of the show. William Theodore Catt played Ralph Hinckley. Now, Hinckley is this average guy going through a divorce and trying to raise a son. His son's name is Kevin, and is only seen occasionally during the first season, and as the show went on, he gets phased out. Not sure where he went. He lives in L.A. and works at Whitney High School as an English teacher assigned to the special ed department to basically watch a bunch of troubled kids. Of course, these kids often exceed expectations and stand up for Ralph in a lot of fun episodes. Before Cat was on Greatest American Hero, he did work on lots of shows on TV. He was in Kung Fu and movie work. He did Carrie. He was also after The Greatest American Hero in the movie House, which is a great horror film. Cat comes from an acting family, and his mother, Barbara Hale, plays his mother, Paula Hinckley, in a few episodes. Robert Culp played Bill Maxwell, who was a workaholic FBI special agent. Culp started working in acting in the 50s and had come to New York and did a couple of dramas before returning to California, where he did some work in westerns in the late 50s. It was during the 60s, though, that Culp would really become popular in the groundbreaking espionage program I Spy. He will often play sort of slick, sardonic characters and would work for 50 years in movies and television. Sadly, in 2010, Robert Culp passed away, but he was working right up till 2010. The third member of the cast is Connie Selica, who played Pam Davidson. Pam is an attorney who often joins Ralph and Bill on their adventures. She's the attorney who handled Ralph's divorce and would later become his girlfriend and eventually his wife. Selica had played Lisa Benton on the TV show Flying High and worked on Beyond Westworld and had a limited appearance on Hotel before Greatest American Hero and then became a regular cast member afterwards. Here's a weird fact about Connie Selica, besides the fact that she's married to John Tesh. According to a TV Guide article published during the run of The Greatest American Hero, she was quite fond of playing practical jokes, usually involving faking her own suicide or death. Reportedly, her husband at the time, Gil Gerard, yes, Gil Gerard, got used to coming home and finding her lying in a pool of fake blood, 
and would critique that particular death. So I think the character of Connie Selica is much more interesting than the character of Pam Davidson when it comes down to it. Rounding out the cast, you had Faye Grant as Rhonda Blake. She was also Dr. Julie Parrish on V. You had Dan Cervantes playing Paco Rodriguez. And Michael Pere played Tony Villacana. Pere would do a bunch of stuff, but he's probably, to me at least, best known for playing Eddie in Eddie and the Cruisers and Eddie and the Cruisers Part 2. Hey, this is William Catt, your favorite greatest American hero, and you are listening to The Retroist. All right, I'm with William Catt, greatest American hero, House, and, of course, Carrie. William, how you doing? I'm doing really, really well. It's uh, fantastic being here at, uh, at the con. How's the convention going for you? It's been, it's been pretty terrific. You know, uh, the, my, my criteria is pretty easy. You know, if the people are terrific, then, uh, then I'm good. And the fans have, been, have just been so uh, gracious and wonderful. Now at the conventions, when uh, the fans, what, what do you usually like to talk about? Which movie or show? the most uh, I'm always I'm always uh, I always like to be surprised and uh, fans will come up to me and talk uh, for sometimes some very obscure things that I've done uh, for instance uh, Paperboy which was a film I did for Image along, uh, uh, many years ago never really got the respect that it deserved it was a very very good uh, uh, horror genre film that never really got uh, got the respect I, that, that I thought it should have gotten well now have you always want to be an actor? No, I didn't always want to be an actor, but I grew up in an acting family, so it uh, it kind of fit. Uh, I fit in the skin very well. Uh, when I went to school, I thought I was going to be a musician. Uh, then I was flying a lot. I was going to be a pilot. Um, and uh, after I, you know, I was in the Air Force from '69, '73, and uh, after I got out, I just I just migrated into the film industry. You know, started making money. And I think you 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 follow when you start making money, you start to, you just follow the the, the van. The gold vein, so to speak. Now, uh, your mother, Barbara Hale. Yes. God bless her. I loved her, Perry Mason. Yeah. Now, did you ever do any of the shows with her, on Perry Mason? Yeah. When when I was a kid, uh, you know, one of the one of the great thrills of growing up in a in a Hollywood family was that I'd get to miss school and go to the set. So uh, we used to love to get up, you know, while it was still dark in the morning at four thirty or so, and have coffee. Which I started my love affair with coffee at about the age of ten. And uh, and go to the set and uh, uh, climb around on all the old equipment, the Mitchell cameras. I used to love to move the gears and stuff, and uh, and I used to do that. And and uh, I did a couple little things as an actor uh, on the Perry Mason uh, show. And then later on, when my dad was working, of course, my dad was Bill Williams, did Kit Carson and a lot of RKO westerns. I worked with him on an episode of Rawhide with Clint Eastwood. I remember, really? at twelve years old. That was one of my first scenes, yeah. Nice. Um, and Carrie, how'd you get the part for the movie Carrie? Uh, agent, my agent just gave a call, said they were auditioning, and um, uh, as a side a sidebar, I was actually dating Amy Irving at the oh, really? time. 
but I didn't even know she was auditioning. So uh, that was kind of a pleasant surprise. Um, I uh, auditioned for, I met Brian De Palma and, and uh, George Lucas at the same time on the same first interview. They were conducting interviews. He was conducting interviews for Star Wars, and Brian was conducting early interviews for Carrie. Uh, I subsequently did a screen test both for George Lucas and Brian De Palma and for George I did uh, a reading with which is on the DVDs and the extras I did an audition on tape uh, with Kurt Russell oh really him playing Han Solo and me playing Luke Skywalker that would have been interesting yeah if that would have if that would have worked out yeah 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 <laughs> Now, what was it like working with Brian De Palma? Well, Brian was great. Always very attentive to the actors before we started uh, work on the set. I mean, there was two weeks uh, that was uh, designated for rehearsals before the movie. And we met in his apartment and worked on scenes and did improvs and, and, and kind of stuff like that. And he made changes on the script. And then when we got to the set, he was all about the camera. He was all about the technical aspects. And uh, But he had already felt that he had given his time to the actors. Now, in the movie Carrie, what was it like uh, working with the blood makeup? Sticky. Sticky. In the, old, in the old days, you know, it was made out of Hershey's and Cura syrup, and so when that buck, when that blood fell on you, I mean, it was it was kind of yucky and crusty, and it got very hard very quickly. How many times did he have to do it before they got it right? They only hit me on the head with a bucket once. Once? Uh, and then I laid there on stage thereafter, you know. All right, now, um, the greatest American hero, how'd you end up getting a part with that? I was um, on the East Coast when I first saw the script. I was doing a Michelle Tremblay play at the Manhattan Theater Club with Diana Wiest, okay. the great Diana Wiest, playing my sister. We were playing incestuous brother and sister. It's a wonderful play. And a lot of the cast was from the, had joined us from the Guthrie Theater. Uh, we, I was on stage there doing that, uh, and I got a script from my agent and uh, interest from the Steve Cannell organization. I said that it was a very funny script. I read it, and Steve got on his uh, plane, and he flew out. We had dinner together, agreed to do it, and that's what happened. Anyway, Steve came back. We agreed to do it. And, and I, the, the day after we finished the play, I was on a plane back to Los Angeles. My hair had been dyed brown, uh, so I dyed it back to my normal color, which is blonde. And uh, it was a terrific experience, you know. And what was it like working with Robert Culp on uh, The Race Mary? Robert was a pill. <laughs> uh, you know, when I met Rob, Robert, he was a real curmudgeon. And uh, it took some uh, getting used to. Uh, but, but eventually... Uh, and I think that that worked for the show, you know, that the, uh, the, the fact that we did not sync up well, mm -hmm. because the characters in the show didn't sync up well. So uh, that worked to the advantage of the show. And then Connie Selica, of course, was just uh, the glorious, fabulous Connie Selica that she is. Oh, yeah. Now, do you have a favorite part that you played, that you, your favorite role? Oh, God, there's been so many. I, I love doing Pippin uh, on Broadway, and I, I, I loved, uh, you know, I had a, a wonderful time working with, the, I got to work with the Tony Award winning director, Jack Hofsis, and we did two plays together. And did Days of Wine and Roses at uh, World Premiere. I worked with uh, Marsha Norman, who won a Pulitzer Prize. I worked in Sarah and Abraham with her play. Uh, and film-wise, there's been just 
watched so many films, I can't even remember. How about the How about the hardest role you ever had to play? Actually, you know, there's been. They all have. They all come with their unique uh, challenges. Uh, House was very challenging. Uh, you you forget that along with the horror and the comedy, there were sequences of that that were took place in Vietnam, and we played them for real. And they were. It was a real challenge. Thanks to Jonathan and Mike for scoring that great interview. Mike did a great job. And thanks to William Catt for sitting down for a few minutes and taking time to be interviewed. So the creator of the show was Stephen J. Canal, who created a bunch of other TV shows. And when he pitched the show to the ABC executives, Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner, he said he didn't want the show to be the typical superhero show. He didn't want it to be, oh, Ralph saves the world this week or Ralph saves the world that week. He wanted it to be smaller stories that an ordinary guy who just happened to have this suit, and remember the powers are all in the suit, would have to solve. So those shows would center around how Ralph would stop a fix in a Major League Baseball game, or he would foil an assassination attempt. A problem happened, though, because Carsey and Werner left ABC right after the show was sold. The network didn't see eye-to-eye to him and wanted the show to be more like a kid's show, So they pushed for the exact type of plots that Canal didn't want to do. These plots usually involve Ralph trying to stop some huge thing from happening, like a nuclear war, or even foiling a giant sea monster. All things that Canal just didn't want to happen. So a little bit about the suit itself. In the second season, we learned that the aliens had come to this world four, and that another person had received the suit. But that guy, whose name was Jim Beck, became drunk on power and used it selfishly until it was taken away. It was never revealed if other people had received the suit before Jim Beck, but you can imagine maybe the aliens over the years trying to find the right person to have it. In later episodes, we learn that the alien who brought the suit was from a world that was apparently destroyed, and he calls Earth one of the few remaining garden planets. At that point, Ralph is actually given the instruction book for the suit, which happens to be the alien's last copy, but happens to lose that one as well. The suit itself was red and had boots and very odd-looking. In fact, Cat disliked the suit so much that he didn't want to appear in it due to its look and discomfort. TV Guide had to use an illustration of him in the suit for a 1981 cover rather than have a photo of him. Now, the origin of the symbol on the suit has been debated. The show's creator, Stephen J. Canal, says that the symbol was actually based on a pair of scissors with square handles that was on his desk during the design of the uniform. However, other people have said that the symbol is actually supposed to be a rocket, and that is evidenced by the use of Elton John's song Rocket Man in the pilot episode. The good thing about the bilateral symmetry of that symbol is that it avoids the backward S problem encountered in The Adventures of Superman. In that low-budget 50 series, film editors would occasionally flip the stock footage of George Reeves in flight, which would allow him to fly the opposite direction without refilming it. The problem is, is that the S on his chest would be reversed. In The Greatest American Hero, they could do that because the symbol was completely reversible. The problem is, is that often Ralph would be wearing a wristwatch. So sometimes in the extended flying sequences, you'd see his watch jump from wrist to wrist. The suit itself has seemingly unlimited powers if you knew how to use them. 
Ralph never, I guess, figures them all out. But outside of flying, some of the other powers include super strength, resistance to injury, invisibility, precognition, telekinesis, x-ray vision, super speed, pyrokinesis, holographic vision, shrinking, sensitivity to the supernatural, and also the ability to even control minds. We never really know everything the suit is capable of, but we can imagine that they just sort of allowed new powers to sprout out when it was convenient for the plot of the show. The show premiered on March 18th, 1981, and the pilot scored high ratings for ABC. They were really impressed and ordered the series as a mid-season replacement. By the end of the first season, the show was on top. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody loved it. The second season premiered late because of the World Series being on ABC that year, and this season would start to show cracks in the show. The network, as I said, wanted more monsters and catastrophes that Ralph could save the world from. Also, at the time, nobody could be sure what to do with Ralph having a son, and eventually he was just sort of dropped. As I mentioned, the aliens returned in the season and showed him new powers. By the end of the season, though, the ratings were marginal. And you can wonder if it's the adults who were maybe turned off to the kid-like plots that were going on. I still enjoyed it myself, so it's hard for me to tell. For season three, ABC moved Greatest American Hero to Friday nights. And because the series ratings had gone down, only ordered a half season worth of episodes. Traditionally, this was a bad night for this type of programming. It was even worse because it was scheduled against what would become a big NBC hit, Knight Rider. And on CBS, there was already another show running called Dallas. You might have heard of it. The ratings tumbled even more quickly. And ABC quickly tried to burn up episodes or move up episodes that they thought would do better. ABC pulled the show, moved some sitcoms into its spot, and said it would return, but it never did. The four remaining episodes of the show that weren't aired were never shown uncut and only aired for the first time in syndication. Now here's Metagirl with the top five episodes of The Greatest American Hero. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl, bringing you the retroist's top five episodes from the television series The Greatest American Hero. At number 5 is Season 1, Episode 5, Divorce Venusian Style. Ralph and Bill get into a fight, and Ralph quits the partnership and leaves the suit with Bill. But Ralph gets caught in the crossfire of some neo-Nazis, is seriously wounded, and the Nazis get possession of the suit. Number 4 is Season 2, Episode 6, The Beast in Black. Ralph finds a window into the fourth dimension while scouting an old house. Bill gets possessed by a woman's spirit, and Ralph must return her through that window. Number three is Season 2, Episode 9, Train of Thought. Ralph crashes headfirst into a train and gets amnesia. Pam and Bill have to convince him that the suit really works. At number two is Season 1, Episode 7, My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys. Ralph takes advice from his childhood hero, the Lone Ranger, after he almost accidentally kills a busload of people while busting some crooks. And the number one episode from The Greatest American Hero is... Season 1, Episode 1, The Greatest American Hero. In this pilot for the show, odd couple Ralph Hinckley, a liberal schoolteacher, and Bill Maxwell, a conservative FBI agent, are approached by aliens who give them a suit that grants superpowers to the wearer, with the caveat that it must be used for the common good. 
And there you have it, the Retroist's top five episodes from The Greatest American Hero. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. Thanks, Metagirl. As always seems to be the case when you have a superhero anything, lawsuits follow. DC Comics filed a lawsuit against the greatest American hero, trying to stop the pilot from ever airing. They said it was too similar to Superman. A judge ruled in the greatest American hero's favor, and the pilot aired. But even during the show's second season, DC was still trying to end the series, saying it infringed all over their copyrights. And because of this, many of the potential licensees from the show backed out. That's why there's very little Greatest American Hero merchandise. As I said, I would talk a little about the name of Ralph Hinckley. So the character's name is originally Ralph Hinckley, but on March 30th, 1981, there was an attempt made on the President of the United States' life by John Hinckley Jr. ABC didn't want their character of what could be a popular new show referred to as a possible assassin, so they changed his last name to Hanley. For the rest of the first season, he was either Ralph or Mr. H. And when you hear those first episodes back then, it was very obviously an overdub. Luckily, by the second season, things had kind of blown over, and they returned his name back to Ralph Hinckley. Does this sound familiar? Unless you lived under a rock in the United States, you would probably know that that is Believe It or Not, which was also the theme song to The Greatest American Hero. It was composed by Mike Post and Stephen Geyer and was sung by Joey Scarberry. The theme song became a huge hit during the show's run. It debuted on the top 40 of the Billboard 100 on June 13, 1981, eventually peaking at number 2 during the week of August 15th and August 22nd, and spending 18 weeks in the top 40. Some might argue that the song was much more popular than the TV show ever was. And when the show does get a pop cultural reference, it's often through the song. It's been used in Seinfeld, Family Guy, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the show Heroes, My Name is Earl, and it was also in the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin. George isn't at home to leave a message at the beep. I must be out or I pick up the phone. Where could I be? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm not home. The show itself has been referenced in the pop cultural reference machine Robot Chicken and on The Big Bang Theory most recently. Now, at the end of the run of The Greatest American Hero, they tried to do a spin-off show, and it's often shown in syndication as the final show of the run of the series, and it would have been called The Greatest American Heroine. In 1986, the original cast reunited for a pilot. This pilot reveals that several years after the final episode, Ralph's secret identity was finally revealed to the public, resulting in him becoming a celebrity. This upsets the aliens who gave him the suit, and... They ask him to find a new hero to wear the costume. He finds a woman named Holly Hathaway, played by Mary Ellen Stewart, and she becomes the new greatest American hero. 
if the show had been picked up, she would have worked with Bill Maxwell and done very similar things as Ralph did during the show. It didn't result in a new series, and the pilot was never broadcast on NBC. But as I said, it was re-edited as an episode of the original series, complete with the opening credits and theme, and has been shown in the syndication package of the original series. Here's a fun thing for video game fans. There might never have been a video game of Greatest American Hero, but in 1982, Activision had the Star Master Greatest American Hero contest. Before the debut of the third season, Activision ran a contest featuring their new game Star Master for the Atari 2600. And if you thought you had a high score, you would photograph it on the television screen and send it in for judging. The high scores in six age categories would be flown to California to visit the set of The Greatest American Hero and meet the cast. Plus, the winners would all be featured in an upcoming episode. The contestants with the next top 200 scores would then be sent a Greatest American Hero t-shirt. Now, I had Star Master, and I don't remember entering this contest, which has always been a disappointment to me. I see the ad for it, and I scratch my head going, why didn't I enter this? I could have been in California. I could have been on The Greatest American Hero, or at the very least, I could have gotten a really cool shirt. Now, it didn't help that they were constantly under the threat of being sued. But Mego, the company that made really cool toys, especially in the 60s and 70s, did create a couple of Greatest American Hero figures. This was supposed to be the first new release of 8-inch figures, but because of the way the show went, those 8-inchers never happened, and instead, we only had the 3-inch line, which were produced just in time for the company's demise. A few prototypes of the 8-inch figures have been found in flea markets around the world. Greatest American Hero continues to show up from time to time. William Catt announced in 2008 that he was going to create a comic book based on The Greatest American Hero, and he did. It premiered at Comic-Con that year, and three issues were released in total, and you could order those still at arcana.com. If the comic had taken off, Cat hoped to make an animated series of webisodes with Cat, Culp, and Selica supplying the voices of their characters from the series, but the comic book didn't seem to do as well as it could have, and this never happened. There was also plans in the work to make a live-action film starring Eric Christian Olsen last year. Sadly, financing never came through for the project. But I think Olsen, who played Lloyd Christmas in Dumb and Dumberer, and most recently was on the TV show Community and some other stuff, would actually be a pretty good Ralph Hinckley, or at least a character like him. Maybe he would be Kevin Hinckley, all grown up. Hmm. If you are a fan of Greatest American Hero, you could watch it online. A lot of the episodes are available to stream, but if you just wait one more week, the full series is being released on DVD, and if you're a great fan of the show, it's great to own the show completely unedited and uncut, and I suggest you pick that up, and you will have hours of enjoyment of a great show that probably deserved another season or two. It seems really difficult to make superhero television shows. Every time one comes on, I definitely watch it, and... Some of them I've stuck with longer than others. I've watched some Smallville. I've watched Heroes probably longer than I should have. But those shows seem a lot more contrived than The Greatest American Hero did. It seemed like a fresh take on the superhero genre at the time. And I would love to see it rebooted as a television show without the slick veneer of what we see on modern television. And instead get back to the smiling hero who tries to save the day. And while his methods might be unorthodox or he might not seem heroic all the time, He usually comes through. 
Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. Thanks to Metagrill for a great top five list. Thanks to Jonathan and Mike for a great interview with William Cat, And of course, thanks to William Cat for giving them that interview. He's a great actor who continues to work, and you should check out what he's doing. Just do a search on William Cat, and you'll see that the man is very busy. Thanks to Peachy for the music you hear during the show. If you'd like more info about Peachy's music, why not email him at peachy at retroist.com. If you'd like to discuss The Greatest American Hero, please drop by the website's forums at retroist.com slash forum. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Now that I think of it, why do we want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know, and we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. There's a lot of who knows what away. Okay, gotta find that phone. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.